Names for Company. I'm your host, Brian Dillon. Have you bestowed a name on your bicycle or your car? If so, that implies you feel a personal bond with your mode of transportation. Do you talk to it by name? When I return from a long road trip, I pat the dashboard and say, Thanks, Ravi. I imagine our elderly Toyota Rav, who travels under the moniker Ravi, as in Ravi Shankar, understands how much he's appreciated. Have you inherited an inanimate object that carries emotional weight? Maybe a piece of furniture, or jewelry, or even a mixing bowl. The poems on today's show respond in a variety of ways to inanimate objects. Our first poem deals with an object few people owned a generation ago. Now most of us do. One incompetent computer user offers advice in the form of questions to another incompetent computer user. This is Lee Stein's poem, What Happens If You Click It? Did it work? Is it bigger? Does it ask for a password? Does it say which account the money was deposited in? What if you double-click? Did you check your spam? Did you try closing all your tabs? Did you send an inspirational quote to the person in position number one? Is the Wi-Fi working for you? You don't have two-factor turned on? What if you hold down the shift key, take a screenshot, say the Pledge of Allegiance, change your underwear, see if they offer free shipping, check your heart rate monitor, accept the cookies, turn it off, and back on again? Is it working now? That's Lee Stein's poem, What Happens If You Click It? A term unfamiliar to me was two-factor in the line, you don't have two-factor turned on? The reference, as you may very well know, is to an identity security method requiring two forms of ID to access information. As the level of desperation increases, the questions swerve from the practical, does it ask for a password, to the bizarre what if you hold down the shift key, take a screenshot, say the Pledge of Allegiance, change your underwear, see if they offer free shipping, check your heart rate, monitor, accept the cookies, turn it off and back on again? Is it working now? This poem is from the young Lee Stein's 2021 volume, What to Miss When, which offers her poetic responses to the COVID crisis. While her poem, What Happens If You Click It, does not directly reference our era's pandemic, she captures some of the everyday paranoia associated with it. Contrary to the rest of the poems I'll read, I would not say the person offering advice in Stein's poem expresses an emotional attachment to the laptop. Maybe we'd say instead that with her pile-up of questions, she's in a state of comical confusion. 
Richard Polt, author of the nonfiction book The Typewriter Revolution, a typist companion for the 21st century, probably would suggest any frustrated wordsmith could simply close the laptop and set up a typewriter. On his website, okay, I needed a laptop to look this up, Richard Polt addresses frequently asked questions. At times, his answers are poetic. For example, here he poses the question, why write on a typewriter when you can write on a computer, and responds with five more questions. Consider this response to an FAQ, a frequently asked question, as a free verse poem. Why write on a typewriter when you can write on a computer? Why take a country road when you can take the interstate? Why ride a bike when you can drive a car? Why shop at the corner store when you can shop at Walmart? Why cook from scratch when you can eat fast food? Why draw a picture of something when you can point your smartphone at it? Implied is the concern that we've lost contact with slower, more deliberate activities, riding on country roads, biking, shopping locally, cooking from scratch, drawing the images we value. Nostalgic? Yes, but it's right to be reminded that we choose how to function in our world. Richard Polt's the typewriter manifesto, which is spaced as a poem, opens his book. It offers a defiant argument. This is Richard Polt's poem, The Typewriter Manifesto. We assert our right to resist the paradigm, to rebel against the information regime, to escape the data stream. We strike a blow for self-reliance, privacy, and coherence against dependency, surveillance, and disintegration. We affirm the written word and written thought against multimedia, multitasking, and the meme. We choose the real overrepresentation the physical over the digital, the durable over the unsustainable, the self-sufficient over the efficient. The revolution will be typewritten. That's Richard Polt's poem, The Typewriter Manifesto. I'll note just one of the poem's concerns, surveillance especially since this poem was published in 2015, we've recognized how much oversight occurs on our personal data, how much this inanimate object on our desk, our laptop, circulates our personal information. Unfortunately, Richard Polt was prescient. Perhaps you own a typewriter, inherited from a grandparent or great-aunt. 
Does it weigh twice as much as your laptop? Does it also carry immeasurable emotional weight? Some inherited objects have that effect on us. Our next poem focuses on an inherited inanimate object. In this case, a handcrafted wooden box. But the poem, of course, goes beyond describing the object. We learn of its origin, how it was made, what the box now holds. Because the speaker inherited the box from his father, it prompts reflections on differences between father and son. This is Robert Wrigley's poem simply titled, Box. The little barn, built entirely of cherry wood, studs, beams, rafters, braces, even the battened siding from the trees of the vanished orchard before it, was unusual in that pineless, hardwood-only land, and by then, in the time my father and his friend disassembled it, worth a fortune, theirs, if only they would take it away. And that's what they did. Four flatbed truckloads they divided in equal portions, each to his own wood, wood shop. From those stacks, over the years, emerged desks, chairs, tables and shelves, cabinets and chiffarobes, picture frames and coat racks, and an elaborately dovetailed carry-all box my father made, and in which, for years now, I have saved postcards from friends all over the world. A year after my father's death, there's still a substantial pile of cherry wood awaiting plane, saw, and chisel, awaiting his hands or the hands of his friend, who is also dead, so that now the pile is mine, along with many tools I do not know how to use, though I intend to learn to, a little at least. I would like to make something of cherry wood, something a man with a completely other kind of patience and skill might make, someone who has devoted his life to the joinery of words, to the containment of meaning and implication, little boxes, the practicality of which, let alone the purpose, might seem, at best, elusive. A bookcase, I'm thinking, square and upright sides, with routed curves into which its shelves might be fitted, a built-up base, shooed in a simple molding, a matching bonnet, similarly molded and mitered. Here and there in the stock, small square nail holes my father would have filled invisibly, but which I will leave. In honor of the barn, he and his friend spent a week disassembling fifty years ago, leaving also these two or three dimples from a crowbar, which they would have planed away, having minds inclined toward perfection, something a man in my line of work 
does not quite believe in, a feeling I do not think my father would have understood. After all, the carry-all box where the postcards are is perfect. And I love the postcards, too, most of them saying only the usual things that are said on such cards. When he gave me the box, I asked my father, What's this for? And he responded, Anything that will fit, anything you can imagine. That's Robert Wrigley's poem, Box. The speaker acknowledges there's still much wood left over now that his father has died. Now this pile is mine, along with many tools I do not know how to use, though I intend to learn to, a little, at least. With these modest intentions, the speaker anticipates he could build a bookcase, and that anticipation prompts the speaker to envision the bookcase he would construct and how his career as a poet has led him to make choices his father, a more practical man, would not make. Unlike his father, for example, the speaker would be disinclined to fill in the nail holes from the barn wood or plane the dimples created by a crowbar. He'd leave the flaws intact. This is a seven-stanza poem. I'm going to reread stanzas four, five, and six. I would like to make something of cherry wood, something a man with a completely other kind of patience and skill might make, someone who has devoted his life to the joinery of words, to the containment of meaning and implication. Little boxes, the practicality of which, let alone the purpose, might seem at best elusive. A bookcase, I'm thinking, square and upright sides with routed curves into which its shelves might be fitted, a built-up base shooed in a simple molding, a matching bonnet, similarly molded and mitered. Here and there in the stock, small square nail holes my father would have filled invisibly, but which I will leave. In honor of the barn, he and his friend spent a week disassembling fifty years ago, leaving also these two or three dimples from a crowbar, which they would have planed away, having minds inclined toward perfection, something a man in my line of work does not quite believe in, a feeling I do not think my father would have understood. Again, that's from Robert Wrigley's poem, Box. The speaker implies his poems are like little boxes, the practicality of which, let alone the purpose, might seem, at best, elusive. What are poems for? Well, the ones on today's episode might prompt us to reflect more on inanimate objects we might take for granted, to consider their emotional power. The speaker's father tells him the box may be used for anything he imagines. 
the final stanza of Wrigley's poem begins. After all, the carry-all box where the postcards are is perfect. I would add, after all, isn't there something perfect about this poem as well? The Sacred is the title of a poem by Stephen Dunn that fits today's theme of verse about inanimate objects. Let's hear it before I say anything more about it. This is Stephen Dunn's The Sacred. After the teacher asked if anyone had a sacred place and the students fidgeted and shrank in their chairs, the most serious of them all said it was his car, being in it alone, his tape deck playing things he'd chosen, and others knew the truth had been spoken and began speaking about their rooms, their hiding places. But the car kept coming up, the car in motion, music filling it, and sometimes one other person who understood the bright altar of the dashboard and how far away a car could take him from the need to speak or to answer. The key in having a key and putting it in and going. That's Stephen Dunn's The Sacred. There's one nod to the conventionally religious use of the term sacred, the bright altar of the dashboard. The teacher explicitly asked the students to reflect on a sacred place, and their immediate response was to fidget and shrink in their chairs, until their classmates spoke about his car, effectively granting them all permission to think of the sacred detached from any religious notion. Perhaps this young student considers his car a valuable substitute for any church or religious practice. This young student does not claim he's named his car. Nonetheless, his emotional connection to it is unambiguous. He expresses respect for the private zone of his car. Perhaps that's a feeling you have too, if you think back on all the vehicles you have relied upon. Dunn's poem consists of one sentence spilling out over six tercets, that is, six three-line-long stanzas. Let's hear it once more. After the teacher asked if anyone had a sacred place and the students fidgeted and shrank in their chairs, the most serious of them all said it was his car, being in it alone, his tape deck playing things he'd chosen, and others knew the truth had been spoken and began speaking about their rooms, their hiding places. But the car kept coming up, the car in motion, music filling it, and sometimes one other person who understood the bright altar of the dashboard and how far away a car could take him from the need to speak or to answer. The key 
in having a key and putting it in and going. That's Stephen Dunn's poem, The Sacred. So far, we've considered a laptop, a typewriter, a cherrywood carry-all box, and a car. I'll close today's show with a poem about an inanimate object that performed its role as a lifesaver. Sharon Old's poem, Adolescence, takes us back to the 1960s. The poem presents an 18-year-old woman alone in a locked room preparing for intimacy with her boyfriend. The ritual she carries out is still new and strange for her. This is Sharon Old's poem, Adolescence. When I think of my adolescence, I think of the bathroom of that seedy hotel in San Francisco where my boyfriend would take me. I had never seen a bathroom like that. No curtains, no towels, no mirror, just the sink green with grime and a toilet yellow and rust-colored, like something in a science experiment, growing the plague in bowls. Sex was still a crime then. I'd sign out of my college dorm to a false destination, sign into the flop house under a false name, go down the hall to the one bathroom and lock myself in. And I could not learn to get that diaphragm in. I decorate it like a cake with glistening spermicide and lean over and it would leap from my fingers and sail into a corner to land in a concave depression like a rat's nest. I'd bend and pluck it out and wash it and wash it down to that fragile dome. I'd frost it again till it was shimmering and bend it into its little arc and it would fly through the air, rim humming like Saturn's ring. I would bow down and crawl to retrieve it. When I think of being 18, that's what I see. That brimmed disc floating through the air and descending. I see myself kneeling, reaching for my life. That's Sharon Old's poem, Adolescence. A car was sacred for the teenage boy in Stephen Dunn's poem. For the teenage girl in Sharon Old's poem, it's a diaphragm. That mechanical contraceptive barrier with a bendable spring-like rim that requires some dexterity for the woman to fit it into place. And I could not learn to get that diaphragm in, the speaker recalls. Twice in this poem, the diaphragm behaves more like an animate than an inanimate object, refuses to cooperate, flies out of her hand and across the grimy bathroom of the seedy San Francisco Hotel. Consider the poem's final sentence spread out over four lines. 
When I think of being eighteen, that's what I see, that brimmed disc floating through the air and descending. I see myself kneeling, reaching for my life. That line captures the dual tone of the poem. The ritual she conducts is presented like a solitary slapstick routine. Yet the speaker, looking back on her experience, knows the value of this inanimate object. Retrieving it from the bathroom floor means she's also reaching for my life. It gave her some degree of control over her reproductive choices. The poem's opening phrase is, When I think of my adolescence. That phrase could have led other writers to reflect on friendships from their early teens or some insight gained about their family or themselves. But Olds instead takes us to the bathroom of a seedy hotel. The poem's title, Adolescence, suggests the speaker looks back on herself at age 18 and realizes how naive and unformed she was, how unprepared to carry a child. And there's nothing said about the boyfriend. Perhaps he was forgettable. That allows the inanimate object to stand out in this poem. Thank you for listening to Poems for Company today. If you're interested in any of the poems read here, you will find a list of them by going to kmun.org and clicking on the podcast tab. There you will see the names of all the podcast KMUN airs, including Poems for Company. When you click on this show, you will find a credit line for each poem read here. Our show's theme music is Philip Alberg's Going to the Sun, available on his CD live from Montana at sweetgrassmusic.com.